Hey, my name is Augustine Colebrook. I'm the principal at Midwifery Wisdom Collective. My focus is on big picture political movements that are happening within the profession, some of the controversial questions, and centering voices that are not being regularly heard. I'm Layla Wyatt. I am a traveling student midwife, learning midwifery from cultures and a lineage of midwifery throughout the United States. I'm here to center the voices of students to hear their calling, their pathway, why they chose midwifery, and even share a bunch of birth stories along the way. Greetings, I'm Jamara Amani. I am a midwife, a mom, and a social justice activist. I am here to challenge white supremacy, homophobia, transphobia, and anything that keeps people from being their best and living their best selves as we have the human right to do. And I am looking forward to sharing stories of birth justice on this podcast. Hi there, Delmar Dalton. I am non-binary, queer, transgender, midwife, and full-spectrum female. My focus is on increasing access and equity in midwifery care and midwifery education. Hello, my name is Angie Love. I am a community nurse midwife in Vero Beach, Florida, at the practice of midwife love. I also do telehealth midwifery through Midwife RX. I'm a mama, and I am committed to maintaining birth choices for all people and educating a future generation of midwives because we will not die out. Welcome to the Midwifery Wisdom Podcast, and I'm hoping we can do like a little intro. Um, Like some people really know who you are and like how incredibly cool you are, but a lot of people don't. So will you give yourself an intro? I have to, (laughs) I, I don't, what do I say? I mean, (sighs) midwife extraordinaire. (laughs) See, I wouldn't say that. (laughs) I would say that. Uh, yeah, you can say that. I'm. Yeah, I would just say I'm just me. Well, just I'm you saying. is a midwife of thirty-ish years. Thirty, yeah, thirty-three this year. It's thirty-three years. Yeah. Um, who has worked internationally for many of those years? Yes. Yes. And I who have. has attended some thousands of births? Do you have a number? Yeah. Um. I don't remember the exact number now uh, because I just retallied um, and I still have a little jet lag. It's over, over 5,000 at this point. I just Wait, did, so in the last six months, I just did 300 and something. So, and those are in uh, either home birth center or low resource settings, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh-huh. like all of them, right? Yeah. 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 So I think it would, I would be hard pressed to find another CPM alive today who's attended more than 5,000 births. Maybe. Um, maybe my, I don't know. My friend, Cynthia, she's, she's attended quite, I'll ask her how many, but because I know she keeps track and she's practiced mm-hmm. 10 years longer than me. So she may, have um she may have but it would be hard to find so hence Mm. my title midwife extraordinaire that's my point (laughs) okay (laughs) okay
And then during uh, this time, you have got to become kind of by necessity, I think, and also by passion, an expert in twins and breaches. Yeah, out of necessity, I guess. Here, that's correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you have numbers on those figures? <laughs> um, again, not exactly. It's in the three hundreds with the twins, and there have been a few sets of triplets as well. And then uh, with the breaches, it's. 511, I think, or 14. Again, I just did, I should remember, but but my brain is still not quite in this time zone, but um, right it's around still that. still a lot of numbers to keep track of, so. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So aside from traveling with Doctors Without Borders, um, Medicine Sans Frontières, you also um, teach with the uh, Reteach Breach and Breach Without Borders, right? Yeah, yeah. I'll be doing some of the simulation uh, workshops uh, here coming up in April um, that aren't too far from me, uh, some in Minnesota and some in Illinois. And then, mm -hmm. yeah, we'll just see beyond, beyond that. Yeah. And you can find out more information about that. We'll link those courses below. And you're also coming to play with us in Texas in November. I, I'm so excited. Yes. I'm so excited too. Yeah. At the Midwifery Wisdom Experience, uh, Christine is going to be a mentor in skills and she's also going to give a presentation and you've entitled your presentation humanitarian. Tell me again, what, what is your title? Um, yeah, humanitarian aid from a midwifery perspective or midwifery from a humanitarian aid perspective. I guess it can work either way. Um, but yeah, yeah, basically talking about um, those, uh, those aspects of, of the work. That intersectionality between yeah. the midwifery model of care and yet in places that are needing extreme mm -hmm. support. That's so amazing. And of course, um, this, this presentation, I think is going to be particularly epic because of all your stories and photos and like, people are going to get to take this little journey with you. I'm so excited. Yeah. Yeah. I hope so. I'm really excited to, to do it and put it together and yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Well, today's conversation, I really wanted to be about um, you and your experience and the wisdom that you bring. Uh, this is the Midwifery Wisdom Podcast. And so we are trying to share uh, all of this wisdom and, and you carry a particularly large chunk of it given all of your experience. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, some of the births you've just recently attended, but I'd also like to talk about um, American midwifery and what works and what doesn't and because you have this global perspective I feel like you can shed some light on what we're doing and what we're not doing well so yeah. um first of all tell us uh what was the most challenging birth you've attended in the last few months and where have you been I I just got back from South Sudan I was there for six months I was in a a refugee camp um that it had about 130,000 people. And I was working in a, um, 
a referral hospital. And when I say hospital, it's more like, it's not a building, it's, it's in the camp. So it's more like, um, like a mash unit, if you could imagine that. It's a lot like that, including the helicopters flying you know, overhead um, because we were pretty near an airstrip. Um, and so, you know, we were, we're in this environment um, and we basically are serving uh, for the maternity portion of the hospital. We uh, serve the, um, the different um, clinics that we serve as a referral for them. So they attend all of the lower risk and just women walking in having babies. When it gets complicated or when uh, the women are more high risk, then they refer them to us. So that's basically what we're doing. So if somebody's bleeding, if somebody has twins or breach or anything that polyhydramnios, we see all of those things. Um, and that's basically what we're doing most of the time. So it's all uh, all high risk. Not that the, I mean the women to begin with are just high risk, even when they have normal pregnancies, just by virtue of the the context that we're in. But it puts it to a whole new level when they have um, issues during during the pregnancy. So that's what we see our referrals and referrals from our other projects too. And some of those women get flown in, not just yes. not just yeah, nearby. From, yeah, from yeah. two of our other projects, they get flown in and not in an, any kind of timely way. We only have flights a few times a week. So it's not like if somebody is a few hours away by air and they have an obstructed labor, the midwife in that project can go, oh, um, well, let's let's fly them into Bentu and, and Christine will take care of them. It's not like that. They will get the flight out on the Tuesday or Friday. It, it's not a right away sort of thing. So um, it sounds mm. great to be able to fly somebody there, but it's it's only gets done with a lot of planning. There are no emergency. Nobody gets flown out right. emergently. Right. So they get identified like they've got bleeding during pregnancy. They get sent over. Their baby's in a funky position. There's two babies. They're yeah. dealing with preeclampsia. They need a reason for induction, something like that. Right. Yeah. One of the interesting things that you and I have discussed, I think that always makes American midwives have pause or even any Western midwife um, is the way that care is prioritized in these kinds of um, environments where there are scarcity of resources. And one way is that they, they generally don't make clinical care decisions to quote unquote, save the baby. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. Um, yeah, it's the, it's the same pretty much in, um, in most of the places that I work the, um, the care centers around um, the, the woman, the mother, um, and it puts her needs, her life um, first, always. Um, and that's just basically because um, usually there are other children involved and without the, um, the woman uh, there to care for the other children, um, there is uh, the, those children are left as orphans and their survivability is very low. So yeah, we always prioritize um, the woman's life 
um, just for. And it, it sounds yeah. obvious, but actually when you start to tease that apart into the how, that means that you don't do cesareans for babies in distress. And, and I think that's what's really shocking to um, yes. Westernized folks as, as you know, obstetrics around the globe has sort of marched towards this zero death rate that they somehow have as a goal. Um, they have done all manner of interventions on the birth and body to save a baby. And that's just not something that happens in, in low resource environments. And I think that's really shocking. So tell me what that's like, because I mean, people practicing in um, high resource areas, you know, you hear heart tones that aren't reassuring and you're immediately rushing for help. How does that mm -hmm. feel when you experience that? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, um, you know, I know what our protocols are. And because of that, I've, I've learned to know that this is how it is. This is what we have to do. And, um, even though, uh, even in this particular, um, project, I recognized fetal distress a few times. Uh, and it was very obvious um, that uh, that the baby was in distress and would not survive. Um, Endocardiac or D cells or something. Yeah, see, I, I heard yeah. you know, oh, the fetal heart tones are sixty. Okay, well, okay. and she was four or five centimeters. It's like, well, this, there's nothing we can do. If they're like nine, if they're if they're getting close to the end and then we can maybe try to push it and get the baby out, do our best to get the baby out in a, uh, as quickly as we can and hopefully um, save the baby. But otherwise, um, cause we could use vacuum or something if it's, if it's down low enough, but, um, but otherwise, no, there were times when I knew a baby was not gonna survive um, and there was nothing we could do. And that's just how it had to be. Because once you do a cesarean for um, on a woman, especially, and I remember specifically one of these women, it was a first time mother, she was 17 years old. As soon as we do a cesarean, her, uh, cesarean on her for fetal distress, that her whole, all of her childbearing years are now, we, we cannot guarantee that she will have access then to any kind of surgery in the future, it puts her at much greater risk for subsequent pregnancies. And she's got two decades of childbearing and they have many, 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 many children. So every pregnancy, every subsequent pregnancy for her and for the subsequent babies are all much higher risk. And so, mm. um, yeah, we do our best to not um, leave women with scars that they then yeah. have to deal with um, uh, in, in a year or two when they get pregnant again, because yeah. we guarantee their access to, to a, a surgical um, intervention. Yeah, and, and I think it's just, I don't know, I, the stark contrast between um, where the Western world has gone and, and where you have to go is, is, is really fascinating to me. Tell us one of the most memorable births that you attended in the last couple of months. Oh, wow. Um, there were, there were quite a few, um, I guess, um, my, <laughs> my most favorite one was, uh, a woman that came in with, um, uh, P prom and she was about 32 weeks and, 
um, we put her on the ward, but then, and this was back in December, and uh, I think, and uh, she started to, she started coughing, and I was always on high alert for any coughers. I'm like, is she coughing? <laughs> I would say to the staff, I'm like, get her out of here. We always had to, um, anybody that was coughing, we had to refer to um, COVID isolation. They needed to be tested. They stayed there until the test was complete. And um, and then they got sent back when they when they tested negative, but she tested positive. So that me that meant that I now had um, a patient in COVID isolation. And so what happens then is I have to completely suit up and complete PPE whenever I wanted to see her, which was, I checked on her several times a day and it's like 104 degrees. And I'm like, it was just awful with all of this PPE. Anyway, I had to, um, I had to rally the, um, the water and sanitation team to get an area um, in COVID isolation where I could actually attend a birth because with PPROM, I knew she was going to, um, she would go into labor fairly soon. And she was already on antibiotics and stuff um, and, uh, and on dexamethasone for the baby. So um, they rallied and got the, got this little birthing hut and even had, you know, running a cold running water sink, which was great. And I got all the stuff ready and um, just told any of the COVID people, you know, if you, if you notice, if she says she's in labor or whatever, just call me right away. But I was going about every six hours to listen to the baby and check on her. Great. So she finally goes into labor. I think it was the next day. And I was ready and I in all my PPE and sitting next to her. I don't have any of my staff with me, so I can't communicate with her um, because we don't speak the same language. But um, it was her fifth pregnancy. And uh, and I'm like, but you know, it's okay. It's like how it's, I don't need any words. I'm just gonna watch her labor and you know, I'll know. And uh, and and it was fine, it worked out. Um, perfectly fine just just to sit there and I could see things ramping up you could just tell she looked more uncomfortable and she was lying in bed the whole time the baby was breech and I knew this it was not you know 30 regular 32 week size baby um so I was expecting it to be at least at least uh, uh maybe about a kilo and a half so um Anyway, so she was laboring and uh, she was in bed the whole time because of course she was sick with COVID. Uh, so she was not feeling well. And uh, as she labors, you know, I'm, I'm sitting by the bed sweating and all of my PPE, but I'm, I'm all prepared. And then finally she's lying down and she has her knees up, but then she just starts to part her legs a little bit. And I'm like, okay, here we go. You know, this is gonna happen. And, <laughs> I really wish I had videotape of this. I'm watching and I can see something start to peek out and I'm like, okay, good. And I see like little digity things and I'm like, okay, some toes. And then, but they got longer and longer. I'm like, and so it was this hand coming up and like my head, the, the cognitive dissonance that this created in my brain because I'm like, I know that this baby is breech, right? And there's no way in front of me, like that it could have turned to transverse. Like I'm looking at her belly even, 
but all of this is happening in my brain in like a matter of seconds. Like it doesn't look transferred in the hand. I got to get that back up. So of course I can't speak her language. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to like tuck this back up in there. Cause what I wanted to do was tuck the hand up and then go up and see what I could feel. I'm just kind of reposition. I'm like, okay, this is a tiny baby. I'm just going to reposition it. Cause you know, we'll, we'll get it out. No problem. I wasn't worried. It was just like more like I was actually, I was embarrassed and glad nobody was there. Cause I'm like, did this, when did this baby turn? Cause I'm expecting this, this breech baby. So I I'm pushing it in. She's pulling my hand away. I'm like, no, 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 honey, I got to get it back. And in the meantime, she keeps pushing. And then the hand comes out further into the wrist and then something else is coming with it. And I'm like, okay, well, whatever's coming is coming. And I'm just, I took my hands away and it was, it was breach. It was, it was a little butt cheek that came and then the rest of the butt. And then the whole baby just came out, but the baby had its hand behind its back. And, um, and it was, uh, it, it came out, it was just a compound presentation with the, with the hand and the butt. I have never seen anything like it in my life. And it's just cracking up inside. I was also relieved that, oh yeah, okay. The baby is breech. It just was also with the little hand. And I hadn't done any vaginal exams. There was no reason um, to do them. And if I had, I probably would have felt the hand, but there was just, I, I didn't. So it was a complete surprise. And I don't, I've asked several experienced midwives that I know, and, and none of them have ever had a hand presentation like that with a breech. So I was just delighted. And I think I was I mean, that delighted me for like several days. 33 that years happened. and you can still see something new, right? It's so great. Yes, I was, yes yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I love that. Surprise you. Yeah. So he was, he was just kind of grabbing onto his bum, huh? So his hand came out guess, on top yeah, of the bum. He, it was like turned, he had it like backwards and up. Like, and I'm like, how uncomfortable, like who gets born like that with their, with their arm behind their back? Like, maybe that's maybe that that hand is what actually broke the water or trying to get his hand out or something (laughs) oh how fascinating maybe her coughing broke her water who knows well um what a story and um and everything turned out okay even though he was early he had no no breathing issues right no no none at all I think the death dexamethasone we got I think at least two rounds of that in so um yeah he did really well no issues. That's all. amazing. That's amazing. What a great story. COVID. So, oh, good. Good. Yeah. Well, Christine, something that I think uh, listeners will be struck by is how broad your scope is. Um, it does not match the typical American midwifery scope. How did you add this much extra knowledge? Um, it, did it did it come from the trainings with Medicine Sans Frontières? Did it come from experience out of the country with other organizations? Did, it, did you just do a lot of self-study? Did you pick it up along the way? How did you expand your scope so tremendously? Because I mean, like, let me just give context. When you and I talk on the phone, you are sometimes the highest level provider in the camp, in the high-risk center. So how did that happen? Yeah, um, 
Yeah, I often, I usually am. Actually, we don't have um, obstetricians or even gynecologists, anything like that. Um, there are MDs, they work in other departments, but they're, they're terrified of, of coming into maternity. <laughs> That's the last thing that they wanna do. Um, and I know if I have a medical question, if I have something complicated by um, a, a pregnancy that is also complicated medically, maybe the woman has pyelonephritis or whatever, um, I'll sometimes um, consult one of the MDs and go, yeah, help me. What, what antibiotics do you want to give her? And how mm -hmm. I, I'll co-manage it with them. But otherwise, yeah, uh, most everything I've kind of, it's been on the job and studying, self-study. MSF doesn't give you any specific training per se. Um, we, we get a lot of support. Um, we have telemedicine. I can call um, one of the reference or email a referent if I have um, things I want to, uh, you know, case I want to discuss. But otherwise, it's just been um, learning trial and error and, you know, whatever comes in. You never know what's going to walk in the door. And it's just stuff that uh, that you never anticipated ever having to deal with. And then there it is. And you have to figure out how to do it with the limited resources that you that you have so that's yeah but like even even the story you were just saying like um you're talking about steroids for the baby's lungs and you're talking about antibiotics to treat this and you're talking about treating full covid patients on your own like how did how did that happen for you i mean i think some midwives who would like to join medicine sans frontier would be overwhelmed because of the increased scope how, how did that happen for you yeah um well so i I have worked out of the country, um, other places, and less, um, a little bit less complicated contexts. I mean, the the um, contexts were still low resource, but um, so I just I learned a little bit as I went there. I worked with another organization um, when I went to Afghanistan, um, and uh, I learned quite a bit. Um, we so we hand handled about 700 births a month um, and in that uh, maternity. And so you got to experience a lot of things very rapidly. There were certainly plenty of just normal births. Women just come in and push out their babies and everything's great. And then there were ones that were way more complicated and just things happening all the time. I think during that time I managed 10 uh, cord prolapses um, wow. during the time I was there. And we didn't lose any of the babies. Um, wow. So uh, it was, um, yeah, that, I learned a lot in Afghanistan, but that's because the, the volume was so high. Um, and then I had other people, it was not with MSF. so. Um, there were physicians there um, that I was able to learn from that had been in the field for, for quite a long time. And then um, moving on um, to MSF, we have very specific guidelines. And so um, how to, you know, if I want to learn how to manage a preterm um, birth, somebody comes in at 32 weeks, what do I do? I, if I don't know, I can turn to the guideline book. There's also an app on the phone, same guidelines. And it'll say 32 weeks to give and then dexamethasone and this, that, this amount, this many hours. And, and all of those medications are provided. We have all of them um, usually, unless there's a problem with supply chain, which 
also does happen. And then, then you have to use something else or you have to go without, but, um, it's basically, um, yeah, we, I follow the guidelines and, uh, a lot of the things that walk through the door are not in the guidelines because they're, um, they're just really out of the box. It's several things mixed up into one. So yeah, it's really What's just it like, <clears throat> I, we talked on the phone a couple of weeks ago when you were still there. Um, and I can't remember the case, but you had some case where you said you were like rushing and like helping the local midwives and like doing the best you could and kept looking over your shoulder, hoping that like the next most experienced person would walk in and then realized it was you. <laughs> I loved that story so much. Um, and I just, I wonder like, has that happened to you? Does it happen to you regularly? No, it not anymore. So I had that thought in, um, I was in Bangladesh and I remember dealing with it. It was a, uh, I remember specifically the case. I had walked into maternity in the morning and, uh, and they were um, managing um, a breach and it was preterm. I'm not sure exactly, maybe about 34 weeks or so. So I walked in in the middle of it and the woman's already pushing the baby out. And, uh, and there was a cervical head entrapment. And um, so, you know, that's every, um, if you ask midwives here, you know, about breach, that's their like worst nightmares. What about if the head gets stuck? Um, and so, you know, this is what I walked in on. And so I'm, you know, I have to figure out, of course, I don't know that this is what, what it is. I have to figure it out by like going in and using my hands and feeling around and going, okay, so we have this small baby. I wasn't here. I don't know how dilated she is, but it feels like she was probably dilated about seven when the baby started to come based on what I was feeling inside. So I have to work to get this baby's head out. And I remember, you know, like, going in there and, um, you know, getting my fingers up and in and trying to kind of like do like MSV to, to kind of um, get the baby's head uh, tilted and bring it down. But, you know, it's like this really tight reverse turtleneck. And yeah, at one point in time, I remember looking over my shoulder, like, and I'm like, I was looking for someone like to help me, like, <laughs> like somebody that knew more than me that could get me out of the situation and I'm like nope it's just you and when when that kicked in I'm just like okay well I, I have to get this baby out this is not sustainable for this woman to have this baby hanging out of her body and like failure is not an option and so I just had to keep working at it until I got the baby out and and I did and I have done that a few times since uh, the the same sort of scenario so I have been there. I have uh, lived the uh, any worst nightmare that a, um, a midwife can think up in her head. I have probably lived that nightmare um, yeah. for real. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And how do you deal with that? I mean, I know that these these missions are incredibly taxing, partly just because of the the sheer devastation and, and heartache in these war-torn or refugee camps. Um, also partly because of just the low resources and the environmental stress on your body. It's either very cold or very hot. You're living in tents or without a lot of resources yourself. 
that's all would take its toll. But then there's this other piece that I think so few midwives ever really tackle. Um, when you're working so remote or with so low resources, it, the buck does stop with you. Failure is not an option. And that's a kind of heavy responsibility, a kind of weight that a lot of people can't even imagine. How, how do you cope with that? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I guess um, I understand what, what I'm capable of, what I understand the resources that I have. I understand the guidelines that I have to follow. And I know that I can't save everybody, um, even though I want to. <laughs> um, that's, I think it's human nature, but I, I know that I can't. Um, the deaths of um, babies are a little bit easier to deal with because um, because they happen so, so frequent, like I deal with in this mission, I think almost every day there was a death of the, whether it was just a miscarriage death or a, you know, a, a 18 week, um, baby, or it wasn't, it wasn't that everybody was coming in having all these stillbirths, but there was death almost every day. There were little, little tiny fetuses of any given sort. Um, most of the time. So after a while, you get a little bit more accustomed to that. It doesn't mean that it's not sad, especially with the first time mom losing uh, her baby. That's always really um, difficult. But um, for me, I think the maternal deaths are the most difficult. And um, I, uh, on this particular assignment, um, there were um, usually there's in a context like uh, South Sudan, there's, you can expect in a six to nine month uh, assignment, maybe one. Um, and, um, and sometimes none. Um, but in this one, there were five uh, in a short period of time, actually. And they, um, they, none of them were, um, uh, none of them were preventable. We, they were all from, one was from COVID complicated by HIV and malaria. Um, and, and the other four were from hepatitis E and um, the death rate for uh, pregnant women in second and third trimester from hepatitis E is very high. And these women were already very sick by the time they walked through the door and there was nothing that could be done for them. But it's still um, it's still uh, quite a burden to uh, watch somebody um, die like that, um, even even if they weren't pregnant, um, and it's still considered a maternal death. So those were difficult, and um, I guess the way I the way I looked at it was that. Um, that they weren't that these deaths weren't preventable by the time they walked in through the door of my maternity, but they could have been preventable prior if um, 
if they had gotten a vaccine there earlier. Back in October, we were, they, we were supposed to start a vaccine campaign for hepatitis E, and then there was this terrible flooding that happened. And so we're in the middle of a refugee camp in the middle of already what, what is a humanitarian emergency, and then there's an emergency on top of the emergency. So the, the flooding was catastrophic, and we ended up with an influx of like 30,000 more people in the camp um, that we're caring for. And so this delayed the vaccine. And if the vaccine campaign had happened, um, these deaths certainly could have been um, preventable. So in that way, it, it was hard. Um, but I just, I guess I left the assignment knowing that there were no deaths on my watch from the, from the usual suspects, which are, um, hemorrhage, infection, um, hypertension, eclampsia, and uh, an unsafe abortion, none. So I felt like I felt like I did my job in in that regard. And so that's what I do. I try to put a I, I look for the positive um, spin on things because there was nothing I could have done for any of the, the five women that died. Yeah. Absolutely not. There would have been nothing that they could have done <clears throat> if they were here in the United States. Nothing. Right. Nothing. Right. Right. So, right. Right. And in some way, that can bring you some solace, um, but it doesn't take away the pain of of witnessing those families grieve and the person suffer for sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I wonder if you uh, can tell us. I mean, I know that it's it's really challenging work, but. Um, but it must be so fulfilling in many ways. And I wonder if you, like, if people listening had the idea, like, wait, I want to go work for humanitarian aid situations. We see the crisis happening in Ukraine right now. And, you know, around the world, there are many actual environmental crises happening where people have need help. And like, what would you tell someone who is applying? What should they know? What's, what's amazing about this work? Oh, there's so much that's amazing. I, I love it. It's, um, it's really challenging. Um, it, it challenges me and, you know, it, it, it pushes you to your, to your limits. You, you, you figure out what your limits are and, um, and where you need to improve and, um, in, in all aspects of your, of yourself, not just clinically, but in every other way um, as well. Um, you know, it feels, um, it feels really great to, to help somebody that, um, that really, you know, that if you hadn't physically been there at that time, that this person may not have, um, have survived. Um, it's, nice to resuscitate babies and be able to hand them crying to their mothers who their last pregnancy they lost the baby and I mean it just there are there are a lot of moments that are are really very um um just triumphant basically um and and it does make me feel um really good to be able to help in that way um the just hemorrhages and and things that are um, things that are difficult to manage. I mean, it, I managed one uh, eclampsia 
Um, and when I clamped a patient, she had seven seizures. It's the most, it's my, my record now. Um, seven seizures in a short period of time, like, I don't know, in less than a two hour time span, seven seizures. So, um, and just getting somebody through something like that and then coming out with a live baby and a live mother and watching them walk out of the maternity a few days later, both healthy and fine, like it gives you a sense of accomplishment. It's like, okay, great. We did a good job. We managed this. Everybody's alive. This is great. Um, wow. Wow. So, I mean, I guess those are the, those are the things that, because there are a lot of um, good positive things that come out of all the challenges. And you work with an international team because volunteers from MSF come from everywhere. Yeah, yeah, we have have a national staff, the national staff that um, I manage, um, they're all South Sudanese, and then um, the other expats that are there, yeah, they're from all, all other countries, and uh, they do all of the other, um, all the other profiles. Um, There's not a lot of intersection with uh, maternity, because maternity is so highly specialized, but like I said, um, once in a while, I uh, call in one one of the MDs to come and uh, help with uh, something that might have nothing at all to do with uh, maternity, and I'm handling the maternity aspect. We or we we move the patient, like the COVID patient. I co-manage that um, with the medical staff. They manage the the COVID aspects of it. And then I manage the pregnancy aspect. And then if there's an intersection, if we need to discuss like, okay, should we induce this, this woman? Should, should we be giving dexamethasone? Because will the baby be viable if, um, if she happens to expel? Those kinds of things, we have these discussions and, and then we decide together the pros and cons. Um, and we have certain loose guidelines in these in these regards, but a lot of it is judgment and a lot of it is kind of ethically what is the better thing to do in the situation. So, so yeah, I work with the other um, to, to wrap up the MSF um, chat. What, uh, what are their qualifications that are required to join MSF? Um, They have to be a CNM or a CPM. Yeah. Or a CM. Yeah. And, um, Yes, specifically for midwives, you um, have to have prior uh, out of country experience, not necessarily in a medical, like if you were in the Peace Corps for two years, 10 years ago, and then you came home and you became a midwife, that's fine for them. They just want to know that they send you someplace really hot and miserable with spiders and snakes, you're not going to freak out. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to have given medical care per se. Um, But that certainly helps. They like you to have language skills, specifically French, because a lot of the countries where um, we have projects are French speaking countries. Um, And um, you have to be at least two years out from, uh, from, like having, you can't have just graduated. Um, they want you at least two years working independently um, or, you know, in a hospital. 
Mm-hmm. So, but mm-hmm. that's basically it. It's all um, on their website. They they list very um, specifically what um, what they require, and uh, they don't put they don't uh, add to their pool um, a lot. And again, you're when you're. It's not that you're hired by them. It's more that you're brought on and you're put in the pool. And then if they have something that matches you, this is in the beginning. Um, it matches, and you're able to to um, dedicate. Usually it's not a first assignment is usually nine months and no, you can't bring your family and you can't bring your pug in case you have, <laughs> you asked, didn't you? I know you asked. <laughs> like I would go longer if you would let me bring my pug. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. I love it. Um, but yeah, so you can't bring your family and they don't have, you know, just a few week assignments or very short term. They, um, they don't, they're, they're long um, because they want yeah. the continuity of somebody there. So it does not work well with somebody with family and small children. It's better if, if it's either before you have your family or it's after your kids are up and out. Yeah, that's smart. Yeah. Well, so um, I'd love to ask you to reflect on these years of experience, um, this really expanded scope that you have, the different perspective that you have dealing in these environments, and really kind of look at um, the U.S. Uh, and, and the failings of the maternity care system in the U.S. What have you learned or experienced that you wish could come back home with you to the systems in the U.S. Oh wow, it's just so much. There's just so much, um, so much that's that's broken here. Um, I guess. I mean, if we're looking at the the hospital system, just the lack of um, respect for women and the, um, and birthing people in general, um, and, and autonomy and, and informed choice. And I mean, it's basically non-existent here. Um, I mean, I can't go, people talk about like the trauma that I, um, experienced vicarious trauma going to these places. I would take that any day to walking into an American hospital and supporting somebody birthing in a hospital in general, um, anywhere in the U.S. Walk us why. Tell us specifically why. Why? I I find it very traumatizing. The just the way the the obstetric, um, just the obstetric uh, trauma and abuse. um, Women are just not. are not treated as though they can make decisions for themselves or or their babies or their bodies and um, and they're just not respected um, and as soon as as soon as a person goes into labor and they walk into the hospital it's like they um, their power has all been given over to all of these people that supposedly know better and 
and I just what just watching um, just a vaginal exam being done instead of asking for consent they say okay this is what I'm going to do now and then before there's even any yes or no or okay they're just they're shoving a hand in and they if a woman doesn't have an epidural I think doctors forget like that if a woman doesn't have a person doesn't have an epidural they you have to be a lot more gentle I mean I think you should be gentle anyway even if they do have an epidural but I watch these exams and it's like these women people are they're jumping off of the table and I'm like what what are you doing why are you being so rough I've been doing this for 33 years you don't have to do that there's a way that you can do an exam that doesn't doesn't cause somebody to react the way like it's like what kind of information are you getting that you have to be this rough there's just stuff like that just it absolutely freaks me out because I watch how the person then responds and it's just you can see it's very traumatizing for them and there's just no reason it needs to be that way and I I, yeah, it's, it's just something, and, and that's just a really small, simple example, like things like that. I just can't take it. And then if I'm there and I'm supporting somebody, you know, that the staff, they can throw us out at any point in time. We, we don't have the right to be there. They can throw us out. So to say something like, whoa, hey, what the heck are you doing? Why are you doing that? Um, they don't have to put up with me being there and questioning them or asking why they're doing it. So then I can't be there anymore to support that person. And then I've just literally cut off any kind of support that she has if I go and intervene in that kind of way. And then they make me leave. So again, I feel complicit, like I'm part of the problem if I don't say something. But then if I do say something, I could get thrown out. So I can't go. It's the powerlessness, right? From the mother and the people attending. For everybody. Yes. It's, it's, Mm -hmm. it's an awful feeling. So Mm -hmm. I, I feel very bad for anybody that has to support um, birthing people in environments like this. Um, No, I feel like doulas are so vitally important at the same time. Oh my God. Like to be a doula in hospitals in the United States is I think one of the most vicariously traumatic experiences I could possibly imagine. Yes, I agree. If you believe in autonomy and sovereign decision-making over your own body, I think <laughs> obviously that's a prerequisite. <clears throat> um, yeah, it's, it can be so intense. Well, so, so thinking about all the things that you learned, um, what are you surprised when you go to conferences or hear people discuss online? What are you surprised that American midwives don't know that you feel like is like a central part to your education and your knowledge, clinical or otherwise? That's a good question. Um, I guess it it depends. Um, it depends on. I mean, I'm always surprised at the the varying degrees of um, education that um, CPMs specifically have. It seems like there's a, a wide variety of of knowledge. Like some are very um, 
very savvy when it comes to um, more clinical um, and um, like technical aspects in terms of like lab work and testing and they're they're very savvy in that regard and then there are others that they don't really order labs or they're not used to um to interpreting lab work and and just things like that that's just one one sort of example so i'm always really surprised at the, just the different levels of um I know it's supposed to be kind of standard because you know there's the the PEP process and you have all these things, these checklists. But still, I think it's a huge there's a there's a huge um, range of knowledge when somebody actually gets their you know tests and gets their CPM between different um, midwives. When I talk to some, um, just just the degree of what they do and and do not know. Um, and, I, it's, and, and I'm not saying this in a critical way. I'm just always really, really shocked because it's not a, it's not- Uniform. Standard. Yeah, it's yeah. not uniform. It's not a uniform standard. process. And mm -hmm. at the same time, we have this widely varying competence in, in definitely in clinical skills across the nation. It's we yes. also have kind of an epidemic of people who are in fact failing the exam. Yes. Um, two and three, and you know, I'm consulting with someone who's failed it seven times. Yeah. And certainly some small percentage of that could be people who are not prepared, but most of the people that I hear that fail the exam are actually already have been practicing <laughs> or have been yeah. um, in the birth world for seven, 10, 15 years, that kind of thing. Yeah or trained under some of the nation's most respected midwives uh, yeah. or graduated from one of the most respected comp you know, uh, uh, schools. And, yeah. and there's this real disconnect between yes. what the educational certification process is, the exam, and what is actually happening in, in, in place. Why do you think that is? Do you have any theories about why that is? Uh, in terms of the exam and the... And yeah. Or why there's such widely varying range of capacity, skill, and knowledge? What's so different? Oh, I I think some of it is um, some of it is the um, there's the self study apprenticeship model that I think it's still alive and well out there. And the then there are yeah. mm -hmm. um, the other um, the other midwives that go through like a meek accredited program where um, maybe there is a lot more academic things that they're learning. And um, they, I think those programs also tend to teach to the test. Um, for mm. me personally, when I took the test, I don't know what it's like now, but back in you know, a few decades ago when I took the test, um, it, uh, it didn't seem to me like, and this is just my own personal opinion, like there wasn't anything on the test that I felt like would make me a good midwife or a better like if I didn't know something like that that piece of knowledge was I the test just didn't it, it's not what I would have tested they're, they're not the questions I would have asked um I, it's I don't know it, and I scored okay on it um I passed it yeah. and but I just felt like the it didn't make sense to me in yeah. terms of if yeah. you really test somebody for going out there in the real world. Competent. Like, is th yeah. that's really what you want them to know? 
because um, I had the same experience several decades ago. And um, yeah. I, I remember thinking this eight hour exam is the sum total of what they think I need to know. There's not even a single test on labs, ultrasounds, blood work, IVs. There's not even a single question in the test about any of that. Um, that was really confusing to me. I think, I think it, it, I came in with the idea that the NARM is a, is an entry level exam um <clears throat> for uh if, it, if it's the common denominator right then it's it has to play to the lowest common denominator because that's who would test and pass right and so i think because the nation as has evolved so differently in the different regions yes. it's a test that is qualifying folks who practice in states that don't have a legal process that don't have access to labs or ultrasounds that don't have consistent right. backup that aren't allowed to carry meds and so it's a test right. that caters to that. Whereas, you know, Washington state, for example, not only gets full Medicaid reimbursement at proper rates, but also now is able to carry all manner of, of medications legally. Um, and I think the, 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 the range is, is evidenced by the, the, how the different regions of the country have evolved differently. Um, and of course the bridge certificate was trying to that bridge that gap, um, but I'm not sure it's done that effectively. Um, and of course the NARM PEP process still is below the ICM standards, um, the International Confederation of Midwives Standards of Education. And I think that that is evident. I, and you and I both felt that. And I think that yeah. is evident in the process. Yeah. What's the solution? Like if you could, without any detractors or critics talking to you, and if you could just imagine um, Christine has a magic wand and she's going to wave her magic wand and bring the U.S. into the modern age, saving lives um, without causing undue harm. You know, what does, how do we get there? Like, how does this work? What are some initial steps that advocates, policymakers, folks that might not even be midwives take to bring the U.S. out of the crisis that it's in? Which if people don't, under, don't know, you know, we have almost the highest cesarean rate in the developed world. We have, we lose the most babies. We lose the most moms. We have the most unnecessary cesareans. 50% of the counties in the United States are, have no maternity health care at all. People sometimes have to drive 50 and hundred miles to access care, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we're in a real crisis. So how do we get out of that? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, um, I think that we we have to look at the you know the ICM standards almost treat ourselves as though we're a de developing country. It's like well, what are the standards for these for these places? And if we're not meeting that here in our own country, if we're not um, if if our cesarean rate is is exceeding what the World Health Organization says is an acceptable rate, then we have to look at that. You know when. Uh, but I think, I don't know, it, it's, the system is so broken. Um, and yes, more midwives are a, um, are a solution, but then you have to find a way to educate the midwives and you have to find and a integrate. way to, and integrate them and, and find a way to, um, have, for women to have access and to be able to um, 
afford to be able to pay a midwife because there's the whole thing of the, the people that want to have home births or out of hospital births and then they can't afford it. Um, and then it's like, but then the midwife can't charge $1,200. Like, that's what I was charging like a few decades ago. That's not sustainable. So, um, you know, finding a way to make it sustainable. I, I just, there are just no easy answers, but no, I think no. uh, kind of having more of a uniformity um, with at least, you know, like the CNM is, that's uniform. It's, it's just a state, all CNMs graduate with basically the, the same knowledge, right? So it should be the same with the CPMs and people are going to hate me for saying this, but it needs to be more rigorous. The CPM should be more rigorous. I mean, I remember when I was certified, they weren't even, do you remember back when they didn't even require NRP to, to have your CPM? And I'm like, well, and I complained for years. I'm like, it's not even required to have NRP. Like how insane is that? And now of course it is, but it's like, okay. Um, but it took <clears throat> a while to like, that was just seems so basic to me. So there are, there are so many things that I think could be remedied. Just, um, I think the, the CPM required, I think it needs a whole complete overhaul that needs from the, from the inside out. And, um, that's one place uh, to start if we wanted to start just from, I mean, forget the broken hospital system, but just yeah. from the midwifery um, standpoint, I think that, uh, yeah, that needs yeah. to be overhauled. I, I completely agree. And also at the same time, there is a whole movement of, of birth keepers across the United States who attend a weekend training and start delivering babies. How do you feel about that? Well, I think um, yeah, I have a lot of mixed feelings about it. I think as long as, like we have to hope that families are educating themselves on the different types of like, what is a doula? What is a midwife? What is a birth keeper? What are but all when the definition of midwives so different, right? Like how do they exactly. figure it out? Exactly. And so it's, it's very difficult, it I think. And, and I, well, I think that, I think if you're going to put yourself out there, you have to do it. Hopefully everyone is doing it in, in an honest way. Like this is, this is what I am. This is what I know. This is what I do. Um, I think sometimes families. I think you're giving people too much credit. <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't think they do I that know. Way. I, and I think sometimes families um, who like, so they can't afford the Mary CPM down the road who charges $4,000, but this birth keeper charges half that amount. And so that sounds good to this family who doesn't really understand the, what the limitations of this person might be, even though they're saying they've told them and I'm just there and I don't touch anything and I don't, I know they all have their own different rules about what they do and do not, but I still think it's this illusion of safety for the family. Yeah. And I think then that's where we see, um, that's where we see trouble because they think that um, yeah. this person is there and if something happens, we want them there 
just because because if you were to ask them, well, why do you want this person? Just in case. Just in case. Just in in case what? Because you have to be aware of what they do and don't know what they have and don't have. Um, Yeah. And And oftentimes the birth keeper doesn't know. Right. Right. They they don't know what they don't know. And so they can't even give clear informed decision making. No. And so this is, this is the slippery slope that I feel like I'm on. Right. Because I actually, I actually did give birth unassisted. I did not bring anyone with me. And, and yet if there was, you know, somebody with me, I would never want it to be construed that they were responsible for the outcome of my choices. Right. And also I would not want the government or some kind of lawmaking body to, to dictate who and how and where and with whom I can have my baby, right? We want that total sovereignty. We want that autonomy of choice. Right. And yet, and yet, we have situations like, I think there was just three fetal deaths in a row um, in a state with a prominent birth keeper population, um, which are perceived to be preventable deaths. And who gets to decide, right? Who gets to make the call? Uh, as we march towards licensure, you know, we have, we've just added uh, Illinois of all places. Um, New York is working on bringing back its licensure process. And um, all of these, all of this march towards getting all 50 states licensed is again, asking that question. Um, you know, who gets to decide who's the gatekeeper of this knowledge, of this experience, um, and of ultimately of parents' decision making, and I think there's just really no easy answer. Yeah, no. and then no. of course, like you said, the payer no. source, like who pays for all this, right? right? If it's still always the family paying for it, then I think, yeah, the government has no say in it. Um, but at the same time, we are living in such wealth disparities that so many people can't afford care uh, yeah we've 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 opened a hornet's nest haven't we <laughs> no there's way to put it back oh so much there yeah there's just so much. so much and and i'm very you know i if you want to have an honest i i i birthed unassisted at home i mean i i'm yep. very supportive of that it's not it's not that i'm not at all i think yep. you should be yep. birth where and with whom that you want um, but, you know, I think also that, uh, you can have people that are misrepresenting themselves. Um, and, uh, yeah. like I said, giving the illusion of safety to, to families, um, that, that yeah. don't know any better. Yeah. Yeah. I, a big public education campaign is, is probably necessary. Uh, well, we can only hope. <clears throat> Christine, uh, you're home now. You're going to do some gardening uh, and play with your pug. When the snow goes away. Right. Having, there's that. We got eight inches coming in tonight. Um, oh, my gosh. But, Amazing. Yeah. But no, and do you I know where it. you would go next and when? No plans. Don't even no, ask me. I haven't. <laughs> I haven't. I haven't even debriefed yet. Um, I'll talk with my career manager later this week, but I was supposed to actually, instead of South Sudan, I was supposed to go to Ethiopia. And then um, right. uh, some of our staff were killed there last summer. And so they pulled everybody out of Ethiopia, but we're going back into Ethiopia again. So 
maybe it'll be Ethiopia, but I don't know when and uh, no time soon. Um, okay. I really need to decompress after this um, six months. It was 24 hours a day on call the whole time. And, um, and I'm, ex I'm so exhausted. Uh, it'll take a while. Imagine. I can only imagine. You've yeah. got a comfy bed and you've got the companion of your adorable pup. So hopefully that will happen. Um, is people, he's in his jammies. Oh my <laughs> gosh. He has pajamas. <laughs> you are a dog mom for sure. Well, tell people they can uh, follow along with your journeys. They can read your amazing blogs that you write and see some videos you post from in the field. If they follow you on Instagram, Facebook, wh what are some addresses? Where can they find you? Oh, yeah. Um, uh, at honeymother64 on Instagram. And my blog is Midwife Without Boundaries. Um, and that's WordPress. But if I think if you search Midwife Without Boundaries, it, it comes up. Um, awesome. Yeah. And then you created a course for people that want to know more about this life. I did. I did. And it's called um, the traveling midwife. Yeah. To know before you go. And it's yep. um, midwiferywisdom.com. So you can find Free that wisdom. there. That's yep. right. And I'll, I'm, uh, I have another course coming up, uh, hopefully in May, no dates yet um, with you guys. Uh, and that's on gestational trophoblastic disease. So that'll be a, a molar pregnancy. That'll be um, an AP course for any yep. midwives that want to learn about the super fascinating. Uh, saw a lot of that in South Sudan, which is what inspired us to yep. do that. Um, yep. And uh, I have some cool pictures. Um, so yeah. Awesome. Uh, I know a lot of midwives are interested in diving into these less common issues, which of course you've gotten so much experience. And so we're excited about this next course and the ones that come after. Christine, thank you so much. I just adore you. You're one of my favorite midwife friends. And I'm just so, so glad that we have this connection and that you were able to share your wisdom with us today. And we can't wait to see you in November in Galveston. Thank you. I can't wait to be there. I'm so excited. And thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. I'm so glad I have stable internet and I'm not in the middle of a, sitting under a mosquito net. <laughs> glad you're Hoping not too. that the internet doesn't <laughs> fail. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye.